Why are you eating a mint, baby? So I can kiss you on the face. Why? Because it's national night. What? You see this August That's an ad for Mentos, the breath mint. It's also kind of an ad for Singapore. It was launched in 2012 to coincide with Singapore's National Day. I'm talking about making a baby. Baby, you ready? Let go. National Day is celebrated on August 9th, the day that Singapore gained independence after separating from Malaysia. Traditionally, it's marked by fireworks, official speeches, and a massive parade. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our cabinet ministers, senior ministers, and deputy prime minister to the float at Marina Bay. Here come our cabinet ministers streaming into the... Dignitaries wave flags, and the prime minister gives a national day address, a little bit like the State of the Union in the U.S. In fact, in 2012, the same year as the Mentos ad, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long discussed Singapore's falling birth rates in his address. But alas, we are having too few babies. And therefore, we have a problem. The long-term trend is down, but we cannot give up. We've got to do something about it. Married couples are having fewer children. On average, now, each married woman has two kids. Previously was more, so this number has also been coming down. So, Mentos to the rescue? It's National In the U.S., we aren't used to ads like that, or to hearing politicians talk about these issues in the way that Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long does. Even though similar trends are at work here, the birth rate in the United States is also falling. Personally, I've always been drawn to these questions about populations. Birth rates, changes in the age of a population, and what those numbers might mean. It always felt like a natural fascination to me. See, I grew up in a large family. And when I say large, I mean large. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I don't even know precisely how many cousins I have. And that's just first cousins. Who knows how many second or third cousins I've got running around out there. And even though I haven't met all of my cousins yet, they're scattered across a few continents, I feel extremely fortunate to have an international support system that spans generations. I also want to have my own kids someday. And by the standards of most people my age, I want to have a lot of kids. But of course, the decision to have children is intensely personal. It's also one that governments around the world try to influence in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. So I wanted to understand what impact these kinds of personal decisions can have at scale, and why governments have so often tried to influence their citizens when it comes to having children. Welcome to Beneath the Surface, a podcast series from Stripe Press, exploring new ideas and big questions in the world of infrastructure. I'm your host, Tamara Winter. So far on the podcast, we've looked at a lot of physical infrastructure, housing, transportation, cities, container ships. But why do we need all this infrastructure in the first place? People. 
It all comes down to people. So in this episode, we're looking at how a country's population, its size, its growth, or lack of growth, are perhaps the most critical infrastructure. Along the way, we'll dig into one of the thorniest questions about populations. What happens when governments try to influence population growth and size through policy? Countries around the world put policies in place that influence their citizens' reproductive choices. The United Nations Department of World Economic and Social Affairs keeps track of these policies. In 2021, their report listed 143 governments with fertility policies intended to either raise, lower, or maintain population size. For example, Kenya has had government-led efforts to slow population growth since the 1960s. These programs, which began by providing basic contraception and family planning information, evolved into healthcare systems for mothers and infants. By contrast, Hungary has recently made headlines for a distinctly different goal. Prime Minister Viktor Orban has spoken openly about wanting to raise Hungary's birth rate, which is among the lowest in Europe. In 2015, the Family Housing Allowance Program created subsidies that increased based on whether a couple was married and how many children they had. The most benefits were available to married couples with three or more children. But Hungary has actually had policies in place to raise birth rates since the late 1940s. One country that has tried to both speed up and slow down its population growth through policy is Singapore. First by discouraging citizens from having large families, and now by pursuing pro-fertility policies. So with that Mentos ad still ringing in my ears, I set out to understand what it was like to live with these ever-changing policies. How did people having kids in Singapore experience their government's evolving attitudes towards procreation? My name is Titus. I'm 69 years old now. I have been in the government service for 25 years with the Housing and Development Board in Singapore. So that's a little bit about me and my wife and I, we have uh, no, let me talk about yeah, three children. <laughs> okay, I'm Vimala and I've been a teacher all my life. Taught for about uh, 30 years, 35 years. We're both born in Singapore and we have lived here uh, for all our lives. Titus and Vimala have seen both sides to Singapore's policy on family planning. We lived through the times when um, we had this policy of stop at two family planning. After World War II, Singapore's population was rising rapidly, much faster than its economy was developing. Even the introduction of family planning in the 1940s didn't slow it down. In 1950, the population was barely more than one million. But by the time of independence in 1965, it was almost 1.9 million, close to double. Add to that, Singapore is a tiny island nation. It's just 281 square miles. For comparison, the city of Los Angeles is about 500 square miles. A booming population, little room for expansion. So by the early 1970s, the government took action. You know, during our teenage years, I think the top at two policy started somewhere in the early 70s. 1972. And we were in our teenage years at no, that I time. No, it was the early 20s. Uh, in our 20s, sorry. Yeah. We were in our 20s uh, at that time. That's the purpose of the policy, is to sort of uh, re-educate you on what is right and what is wrong. I thought it was quite intuitive as well, you know. One child 
the child will be lonely. Two children, okay, he's got a playmate. Three, if uh, some mistakes are made, then you have three. (laughs) The stop at two policy, a combination of incentives and disincentives for families. We got married in 1980, so my First child was born in 81. And after I gave birth, uh, immediately, I think the next day, the nurse comes to me and asks me, like, what plans do you have for family planning, you know? So it was very strict at that time. And they wanted us to keep at two. So if we stopped at two, you had a lot of incentives. Like, they got us at places where we it mattered a lot to us, which was the housing and uh, health. If you had two children, your both the children would get X number of dollars in school for them. But if you had third child, then the third child would have nothing, that sort of thing. So you had to fund it yourself. Yeah. Along with the policies came an aggressive PR campaign. Maybe it was kind of a propaganda. There were campaigns and, um, you know, very subtly you're told like, you know, um, two is enough. Because of two, you get X number of things. And and so after a while, and we were young at that time, maybe in our late teens, early uh, early 20s. And you start to see that, yeah, it makes sense. Actually, I remember this poster very, very vividly in my mind uh, with the father, mother and two daughters. And they say, boy or girl, two is enough. And those posters were inescapable. Uh, like, you know, once you have a government policy, the posters are everywhere. Government offices. Bus stops. <laughs> uh, public places, bus stops. You know? Yeah, malls, uh, everywhere. I just have different versions of it, but the idea is the same. Yeah. Some other posters from the time directly promoted more drastic measures, like sterilization, calling it the best method for family limitation. So if you uh, stopped at two and you sterilized yourself, the lady, you know, um, she could get like the best school for her child, whichever school she wanted for her child. And also the family could stay in uh, some of the better areas in Singapore. So um, it was a very serious thing then. And uh, most people adhered to that policy of keep at two. Some of the ladies actually were sterilized. So, of course, they took the more drastic action to stop at two. Many years later, when the government started uh, encouraging people to have more children, there were some... Bad feelings that you had actually prevented me from having more children and now you're telling me to have more children. So there were some of these undercurrents. So the stop at two policy in Singapore was more than just economic. Sterilizations took place on a mass scale with a peak of more than 10,000 procedures carried out in 1976. The stop at two policy was far from the only effort to limit population growth in developing countries. China's one-child policy which was put in place in 1980, is probably the most well-known. But countries like India also put similar policies in place as far back as the early 1950s. But these kinds of policies often came at a heavy cost, one that has disproportionately impacted women. In Singapore, mothers, afraid they might be unable to bear the costs of a third child, were forced to make permanent, life-altering choices about their bodies. This was also the case on a much larger scale in China. Millions of women were sterilized as part of the government's efforts at population control. Others were forced to undergo abortions. In some rural areas where there was a long-standing preference for male children, female infants were abandoned. And as a result, in China today, it's estimated that there are nearly 35 million more men than women. 
In economically developed countries, the notion of having fewer children by choice gained traction starting in the late 1960s, sometimes with an environmental argument attached. This anxiety about the world's growing population was in large part because of one extremely popular book written by a husband and wife team. It was about 10 years ago this month that Dr. Paul Ehrlich made his first appearance on The Tonight Show, and it elicited probably more mail than any guests at that time we have ever had on the show. Uh, it had to do uh, with his book, The Population Bomb, and it was a major factor in a, launching the ZPG, which is zero population growth in this country. And since that show, he's had about 25 shows with us. The Population Bomb, co-authored by Paul and Ann Ehrlich, was a sensation. Published in 1968, it predicted famine, drought, and mass death due to overpopulation, all within the next 20 years. These ideas weren't entirely new. Economist Thomas Malthus made a similar case in his 1798 book, An Essay on the Principle of Population. But it was Ehrlich's writing that brought these concepts to a broad, contemporary audience. Some paperback copies of The Population Bomb carried the typewritten warning. While you are reading these words, four people will have died from starvation, most of them children. Ehrlich's argument, let's make sure that the existing population cannot just survive, but thrive before worrying about adding more people to the planet. Here he is in 1980. We have a little over four billion today. Large numbers of them are undernourished. We don't have enough energy uh, to go around, people think. The environment is deteriorating and so on. Why don't we try doing a really good job with four billion people, see if we can do that. The legacy of this book, for better or for worse, lives on today. In 2019, a statement on the need for climate action endorsed by over 11,000 scientists was published in the Journal of Bioscience. One of the statement's recommendations, stop global population growth. Now, the methods of population limitation proposed in the statement were mainly about personal choice, like increasing access to family planning services. They were not advocating restrictive government policies, but the anxieties that Ehrlich brought to the mainstream attention are present. So I wanted to know, what is the state of population growth like today? I called up Clara Piano. All right, so my name is Clara Piano. I am currently an assistant professor of quantitative analysis at Samford University. My area of research is family economics, although I've also published in uh, the history of economic thought and the economics of religion. In addition to being an expert on family economics, when we talked, she was also about to become a mom. Yes, yes. I am eight months along uh, with our, our first. It's, uh, she's a little girl. And it has convinced me that no one is ever ready. I just really do feel like it's been a privilege to not only be researching what I find most interesting, which is how families form and and function and interact with society, uh, but to be living it right now as well. So I asked her, is the world's population still growing? So the world's population is increasing, although much less than it was in, in the past. World population growth reached a peak in the 1960s. Since then, it's fallen. And within the next 100 years, the world's population is actually projected to shrink. Researchers like Clara are keeping a close eye on these global trends because unlike Ehrlich, they see potential in a growing population. When we talked, she referenced the work of economist Julian Simon. 
Julian Simon would say, the ultimate resource is people. Of course, there are values of people right beyond economics. I want to acknowledge that completely. And, and he does as well in his work. But basically, it comes down to the fact that people are not only hands, they also have brains and they have ideas. And population growth, even from the economic perspective, is not just a replication process, but a diversification process. So the people who are being born now are going to have different ideas of how to do things that will generate technological progress, which is actually the source of economic growth. This is another view of population growth, also captured by economist Michael Kramer in his 1990 paper, Population Growth and Technological Change. The paper is worth reading in full, but the takeaway is that as populations increase, so does technological advancement, which in turn increases economic growth and, more concretely, raises living standards. So population growth can possibly be a key to solving the existential challenges that Ehrlich described, like food and energy scarcity and climate change. The theory goes, if there are more people out there trying to solve big problems, more possible solutions can be found. You live in New York City, right? Uh, that's the greatest example of this. These kinds of places is where progress really quickens, right? Where ideas multiply. That's what we really need. That's Shruti Rajagopalan. I lead the India policy research at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm an economist by training. Uh, I also direct the India grants for the Emergent Ventures Grants Program, also at Mercatus. I'm a fellow at the Classical Liberal Institute at NYU Law School because in another life, I did get a law degree and I work a lot in the field of law and economics. Her research on developing economies is rooted in India, a country with a massive and growing population. So India's population currently stands at 1.35 billion. I know that's sort of hard number to even imagine, right? The United States, for comparison, where we are recording this, is about 330, 340 million people, right? So the Indian population is 18% of the world. India is projected to surpass China as the most populous country in the world within the next decade. While a growing population can put stress on a nation's infrastructure, Shruti sees India's numbers as one of its greatest assets. India already has the resources of a large number of people, right? Now we need to make sure that these people are healthy, that they're educated, that they're prosperous, that they can actually go into the ideas part of the economy and bump into each other. Their ideas can have sex. And that can become the new engine of growth for like not just Indian prosperity, but global prosperity. Because, you know, in the future, one in five people joining the workforce globally is going to be Indian. But not all countries are growing so rapidly. And some aren't growing at all. So the fundamental question remains, how to ensure that people can have the number of children they want to have? Here's Clara Piano. So this is the like billion dollar question. There is an element of uh, mystery about all of this in terms of the, the declining populations around the world. However, there are some things that we know. We do know that as um, people have become more educated, particularly women, uh, we see lower fertility. And this could be a variety of reasons. Some people think it's um, you know better um, knowledge about um, family spacing uh, 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 fertility decisions. I, from an economic perspective, the most compelling reason for me seems to be that just the opportunity of cost of their time increases. 
With the kinds of economic benefits that Clara and Shruti describe in mind, by the mid-1980s, Singapore was changing its policies. The reversal in policy to have more children came in 1986, I think. It was in 1986 that the policy officially changed. As a snarky headline in the New York Times put it, Singapore decides it wants lots of children, after all. But the policy change didn't happen overnight. Uh, 1984, the thinking was already quite clear. They started this graduate mother scheme, graduate mother policy, where if you are a graduate mother, you get more incentives uh, uh, for education, uh, for your children, tax incentives, including subsidy for even hiring uh, a foreign maid. These were some of the incentives that were given for graduate mothers to go out and work and uh, also to have more children. At that time, anyway, there was a belief that uh, smart women produce smart children. The shift wasn't just from stop at two to everyone have as many kids as you can. The new policy slogan was have three or more if you can afford it. And even then, the government preference was for highly educated women to be the ones having children. The slogan and program were a little harder to distill in a soundbite than Stop at Two. It also had to convince a generation that grew up with Stop at Two messaging. Among my siblings, we're the only two of three kids. All the rest have two. Even my brother, who married twice with each wife, he had two children. So it's just like, oh, that's the best number, you know, it's, it makes sense. When thinking about the intuitive power of Stop at Two, Vimala recalls a family night out at a restaurant. When I had my second daughter, she kept telling us, oh, four of us, are that's just fine, you know? I just remember we were at a restaurant, he said, you see, there's a table for four, that's just nice for us, <laughs> you know? And so when, we, when I told her I was having my third one, she wasn't happy at all because she felt that was really not the, the plan. <laughs> so, so I think all of us had that in mind. You know, we are very subtle, there's subtle messages, you know, that they sent to us. Skeptical parents were only one of the barriers to Singapore's new policy efforts. Another force was at work, a result of the country's rapid economic growth over the years that the Stop at Two policy was in place. In the field of demography, the study of human populations, one of the major concepts is what's called the demographic transition. This is the name for a phenomenon that has been observed in virtually every country around the world. It describes the shift within a country from high birth rates and high death rates to low birth rates and low death rates. There's an ongoing debate about what exactly causes this transition. Social and economic development, things like improved sanitation and better education, especially for women and girls, are correlated with declining fertility and increased longevity. The result? A more slowly growing population and an aging one sometimes even one that shrinks. During the 1970s and into the 1980s, Singapore's economic development was rapid, moving it further along the journey to, you guessed it, demographic transition. Since then, Singapore's population has continued to grow, but the rate of growth has slowed and is projected to continue falling for the foreseeable future. So what does it mean to have an aging or declining population? Well, for starters, the costs of supporting such a population constrain national budgets and put more financial pressure on younger, working-age people to support the elderly. 
both individually and through expanding social programs. There's also quite a lot of evidence that aging populations are less dynamic and more hostile to new ideas. As Singapore was going through its own demographic transition, it decided to work against the trend with policies that encouraged fertility. Some thinkers are encouraging economically developed countries to fight the demographic transition. To understand more about why Singapore and other countries are concerned about slowing population growth rates, I called up Matt Iglesias. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I write a newsletter called Slow Boring. I'm a senior fellow at the Miss Cannon Center. And I wrote a book recently called One Billion Americans. If you're on Twitter, you probably didn't need that introduction. The full title of his book is One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. And Iglesias certainly thinks big when it comes to the United States population. In some way, right, like the population is is the most important infrastructure of all. We're talking about tripling the population density of the United States in this book. That would put us on a par with France. We'd be at about half the density of Germany. Most of the country is not unspoiled wilderness. It just has room for more people in it. He argues that a larger population in the United States would be beneficial to more than just technological development. I think it also matters for um, for innovation and for culture um, that, you know, part of the strength of the United States is that a lot of people come here to sort of try to pursue their, their biggest dreams, right? And that can be technology entrepreneurs. It's also like movie directors, right? Like if you do really well in New Zealand cinema, um, you get to go make a movie in America, right? Because we have a big audience. We have a big enterprise here. That New Zealand cinema example feels especially on point. Just a week ago, while we were finishing this episode, the biggest movie in the world was Thor, Love and Thunder, directed by Taika Waititi, who got to start making indie movies in New Zealand. In his writing, Iglesias brings up a particular statistic, that many women in the United States end up having fewer children than they say they want. What's interesting, though, is that like in the 70s, there was a really big decline in how many children American women said they wanted to have. Uh, For the past 20 years, you have not seen that decline in sort of intended fertility, but actual completed fertility has kept kind of ticking downwards. Listening to Iglesias, I was reminded that Clara Piano, who we heard from earlier on this episode, made a similar point. Educated women in uh, developed countries in particular have the highest fertility gaps, which essentially means that um, although they say when they're around age 25, I'd like to have maybe three children, on average, they end up having two. So that's a pretty big gap. Um, And it's, uh, for me, a signal, right, that there's something going on that we don't really understand. So what can governments do? Clara offers an answer that touches on some of the physical infrastructure discussed in previous episodes of this podcast. At the end of the day, I think that really the just the the best way to to think about this is to increase freedom, quite literally, because women and, and men in general are saying, I would like to have more children. There are some barriers that are preventing them from having children. And so just basic things like increasing economic freedom, just labor mobility, um, just freeing up people to um, fulfill their plans, whether or not that's economic or for their families, for housing, right, to be able to um, to move and uh, to increase the supply of housing so we can uh, have rooms for the children. These are more uh, promising approaches. 
So what does this look like in practice? The promising approaches that Clara mentions point towards options beyond government policies aimed at directly encouraging or discouraging citizens from having kids. Maybe the problem is that people are being prevented from having the number of children they say they want because of rising costs of living, housing, social support, or any number of other pressures. So while building more housing, further expanding the child tax credit, increasing labor mobility, ensuring paid maternity and paternity leave, and promoting workplace flexibility might not solve every problem, I think their policies worth pursuing anyway. Back in Singapore, Titus and Vimala ended up having three children. And though their third was born after the stop at two policy ended, there were still challenges and a lack of support. When I had my third child in 1990, I had no uh, maternity leave or whatever. I didn't get um, a salary for two months if I decided to go on leave. Luckily, they had the kind of financial stability that allowed them to feel comfortable having a third child. Well, for us, actually, we were about to get married. Uh, Our idea was we would have children. And uh, of course, at that time, it had been ingrained in us, two children, you know. That was a proper number to have. Even if we had three, we did not have uh, an issue with that. I mean, we had our two children. We first child was born in 81, second one in 85. Uh, and then five years later, we were blessed with a third, with a third daughter. <laughs> Titus and Vimala are both well-educated and have stable jobs. The financial incentives and disincentives of the stop at two and have three or more if you can, policies were a part of their lives. But they didn't have to change their family planning decisions because of them. Today, they have three grown daughters with families of their own. My mother was maybe my role model. My mom was a housewife, and she worked with a very hardworking housewife. So I used her as, "Mm, okay, I want to be a bit like her also. Because I read a lot, I'm, I'm a I'm a literature teacher, teacher of English and literature. So for me, having three girls, um, I tried to impart quite a lot of things that I enjoyed in my life to them, like poetry and taking them to plays, seeing them um, come full circle, like, you know, having their own families. I think that in itself is a joy. Yeah, I suppose uh, when they were young, of course, uh, there's the joy of as they, as they develop and progress. You know, achievements in school, achievements in other areas of art or whatever, you know. So that brings joy to us. And as my wife said, uh, when they found their life partners, you know. Reflecting on the various policy programs he's seen over the last 50 years in Singapore, Titus remains optimistic about the country and the future. We have uh, lived in a fairly strict country. The standard of living is reasonably good. Salaries are reasonably good, you know. Okay. And uh, I think we are quite happy to have been uh, born and uh, living in Singapore. And Singapore continues to promote policies that support families that have more children. In 2008, paid maternity leave was increased to 16 weeks. And in 2013, one week of paid paternity leave was added. The government also offers tax breaks, housing subsidies, and even cash payments. Maybe this set of incentives will be enough on its own. Or maybe, in 2022, the government will still be looking for all the help it can get, and we'll see a return of the Mentos ad. 
As we've been researching and preparing this episode, I've been saying that this one is for the mothers. Because when it comes to decisions about having kids, the people who carry them for nine months are often the ones who pay the highest price, physically and economically. And I hope to be one of those people. So while it's easy to get lost in the economic theory or the global level demographic statistics, this is personal for me and so many aspiring parents around the world, and very, very real. The kinds of policies we've been talking about in this episode could directly impact my life when I have kids of my own. Lamala didn't receive paid time off to have her third child. The United States, where I will likely have my children one day, is one of the only industrialized nations that does not have a national standard for paid family leave. But what years of research into the causes of declining fertility rates have demonstrated is that economic policies, even very generous ones, aren't necessarily enough to move the needle on birth rates. Extended families, communities, and other layers of social support also really matter. They certainly did for my family. And at least in my circles, this fact is increasingly acknowledged. Some of my friends are even making concrete plans to raise their children together. So I'm hopeful. Hopeful that there can be policies and social structures in place that ensure everyone has the freedom to make their own independent choices about how, when, and with whom to have children. Beneath the Surface is a production of Stripe Press. The senior producers for the series are myself and Everett Katigbak. This episode was produced by Jack Rossiter-Munley. Whitney Chen was our production manager. Our sound mixer and sound designer was Jim McKee, and we had editing support from Astrid Landon. Original music for Beneath the Surface was composed by Oribus. Visit press.stripe.com to learn more about Stripe Press. That's it for this episode. I've been your host, Tamara Winter. This is Beneath the Surface.